know how I'm supposed to preach after that. <laughs> Through blurry, blurry eyes. Thank you, brother, for uh, praying for us in such a profound way. And I just think of uh, things that we looked at last week and just tangible examples of how we serve one another. And then as we've talked about hospitality and tangible examples of what that looks like in the body of believers, that was just a very real way of praying for one another and uh, encouraging one another, and I'm very grateful. Take your Bible and turn to Romans 1. And as you're turning to Romans 1, I want to remind you of the words that you just sang. May the truth prevail over unbelief. May the truth prevail over unbelief. Romans 1 is setting truth in front of us, a truth that you're not going to find in the world that we live in, a truth that is, is it's rare, a truth that, that, that you don't hear coming out through the means of media and communication, but a truth that we must be exposed to to see and understand what's going on in the world around us. This morning, I want us to read through verse 24 through 32. Paul writes this, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know God, know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Weeks ago, we didn't look at the issue that was going on in Canada, mostly because we were going to be coming to this text. But if you'll remember what we were confronted with in that moment where we prayed for those preachers in Canada who were faithfully preaching the truth, it had to do with their being told that they could not proclaim the truth, that lies, in a sense, must prevail over truth. And if you're going to take any other position and you're going to proclaim truth over lies, then you will suffer the consequences for that. This is something of the world that we live in. And yet this truth is set before us, right here, correcting us, calling us to believe. I want to read you a quote from a philosopher who is writing a biography on Nietzsche that describes the situation that we live in today. He said this, very helpfully, very insightful. He said this in the year 2000. These days, he said, sexuality is equated with the truth of the individual. These days, sexuality is equated with the truth of the individual, which is arguably our era's most prominent fiction regarding the nature of truth. Let's think about that in view of 2022. Let's think about that in view of the, the landscape that we live in. Let's just survey the landscape for a moment. We live in a world in which individual desires are prioritized above everything else. 
the goal of human existence, what you'll be told whether you're in college or whether you'll be told whether what's fed to you through media is, is that you need to pursue your own happiness. And that true freedom is only going to be found when you pursue your own desires and when you pursue your own passions and when you follow those things. And the mantra of the day is really, as you've heard and, and you're accustomed to, search your heart, follow your heart, pursue your passions. And if you only Google, at some other time, I always tell you when I say Google something, do it later, right? If you only Google search your heart, these are the things that come up. Follow your heart and listen when it speaks to you. Follow your heart, it knows the way. Believe in yourself and follow your heart. This one, the cost of not following your heart is spending the rest of your life wishing you had. So secular wisdom in the world all around us would seem to conclude that the heart of man is naturally good and that it is something of the source of truth and that this is where you're going to find your authentic self and that you need only to explore your own heart and to dig deep within and know yourself in order to find your way in this world and to pursue your passions and understand what it is that you're looking for that will satisfy the cravings of your soul and finally, finally, finally make you happy. Steve Jobs said, there is no reason not to follow your heart. And perhaps I think we can make a clear line as a result of that, individual desires prioritized, following your heart, that we live in a culture where sex dominates. And the secular purpose then of sex really falls in line with this other purpose. It's in line with the submission to your individual desires. And so its purpose has become something of just your personal pleasure with procreation far less of a priority. And so sex dominates the culture. It's everywhere. It's in art. It's in education that's meant to liberate your sexual instincts to instruct you in that way. Even coming here this morning on the radio on National Propaganda Radio, NPR, uh, it, was, it was telling, had an article there about what was going on between, you know, kindergarten and third grade in Florida that, you know, that there would be a law that would say that you couldn't do that in the classroom. Can you imagine that? That you couldn't liberate children on how they're feeling? So education dominate, is dominated by sex. Politics is dominated by sex as it legislates that liberation. Media is dominated in such a way that normalizes this liberation. Sexuality is being so dominant now in our society that you're defined by your sexual desire. Just go to the doctor, and when they have you fill out the page to describe who you are, now they're asking what your sexual preference is. You're defined this way. Straight, gay, bi, queer, etc., 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 and on and on, right? Defines you. As a result of that, if we just keep going down the line, we see all around us that traditional marriage is completely decimated. And why is it decimated? Well, because amongst certain groups, it's long been viewed as restrictive of humanity's natural sexual instincts. Traditional marriage, they would argue, restricts this relationship between one man and one woman. Therefore, it must be dismantled for a person to pursue whatever it is that your heart desires. How dare somebody say that only be one man and one woman? Then as a result of all of that, unnatural sexual relations are more and more normalized by what we see all around us. Unrestrained, the sexual revolution's objective is really to normalize what was once taboo so that was what was once obscene and offensive really becomes respectable, normal, and commonplace. We're not shocked anymore because you've been bombarded with it so much. So much so that should you think it remains offensive, then guess what? You're intolerant at best. At worst, you're hateful and discriminating or even worse. And it's taken really a number of years for all this to come together, but this is the world in which we live. Individual desires prioritized, sex-dominating culture, traditional marriage decimated, perversity normalized. And the question that we're left to wrestle with, and that goes on in some sense within our society between a Christian thought process and worldview in a secular society is this. Has society actually reached all of this 
is a pinnacle of freedom and liberation and something of a utopia and an ideal that we've been striving towards or is something much different taking place? And then to think about how would we answer that question, well, there must be some source in order to discern the truth, to understand, is that what's taking place or is something different taking place here? And, and that's where we come to Romans 1. And that's where Romans 1, 24 through 32 is absolutely critical to understand and to discern truth in the world that we see all around us. It gives us truth to understand the world and to discern the fiction that's being fed to us. Think about, again, as we approach this, the context of where we've been and all that's been taking place here. This fits perfectly. Paul has a, an argument that he's making as he's laying all of this out. Remember in this section, we, we have to keep this in mind because this, this makes a very disturbing section sort of shine with hope because it's describing to us the great need for the gospel. It's telling us how depraved man can be but it's showing us how great the gospel is and how powerful it is to save. This is describing the need for the gospel. Verse 18 in chapter 1 was talking about the wrath of God. We looked last time at the reasons for God's wrath as man is denying God. Remember verse 20, we provoke God by denial, taunt God by irreverence, offend God by our odious condition that is unholy and insult God by worship. And so you come here to verse 24 through 32, and after man's been doing all of these things to really provoke God, guess what? God responds. God responds to those who have denied him, treated him with irreverence, demonstrated depraved condition, and worshiped creation by exchanging what's incorruptible for what's corruptible. It's a sobering account, but praise be to God as you're looking at this. He's given you truth to be able to discern the times that you live in. And Paul here now is giving us a three-part response from God to the idolatrous heart of the ungodly. And each part that he lays out here demonstrates a descent where God acts giving sinners over to exactly what sinners want. He's not, he's not begging them to go after these things. They're willing to go after them. They want these things. This is the craving and longing of their heart. They're pursuing here their sin to greater and greater lengths, more and more unrestrained. And, and I really want you to see today, it all begins here in the heart of the man. A wicked heart that God is responding to in judgment that's found here, that comes before the great day of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. This is judgment that's observable within our lifetime and in the world all around us. Turned over here, you see the pursuit of the heart of the unrighteous that's more and more unrestrained by God. And what is revealed, what is disturbing, is that it is something of an, obs an abscessed heart, not an obsessed, but an abscessed heart, from which are coming and seeping out sin and destruction and depravity and perversion and rebellion that manifests itself in the life of the unrighteous, all having direct bearing on what you're going to see in this text, man's purity, man's passion, and man's mind. Those things are affected here. And all of it receiving a response from God that reflects judgment. A judgment that perhaps most disturbingly leads to what the unrighteous sinner craves. God's response here to man's denial, irreverence, depravity, and idolatry. The first is this, he gives them over to impurity. Verse 24 and 25, given over to impurity. Paul is describing here God responding to man's idolatry in judgment by giving man over to what his sinful heart is craving. Look at verse 24. It begins with that word, therefore. And that ought to turn your attention to everything that has come before here, namely the actions of the unrighteous. And what are those actions of the ungodly and the unrighteous? Well, look in verse 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, they deny what's evident within them. Verse 21, as we said, they're irreverent. They don't glorify God. They don't give him thanks as he deserves. And in verse 23, they're idolatrous. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what has Paul just done? He's documented their rebellion. 
He's given us the actions of sinners here, showing where the path leads for those who suppress the truth. And oh, guess what? It ends in worship. Those who are made to worship are worshiping anything other than him whom they were created to worship. The object is failed where they've directed their worship towards. Something here is wrong. Therefore, that word, therefore, ungodly man has acted. Therefore, God is now going to respond. And look at the judgment. The judgment here is God gave them over. Paul makes that statement in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 repeatedly here. And I want you to just pay attention to what's going on. And this should be very, very clear. God is acting here. God is taking the active role in response to these actions of the unrighteous that we've looked for. He's not waiting for final judgment. His action, the word in Greek is paradidomi, meaning to give over from one's hold, to deliver one to something. It's used in different contexts. It's used in chapter 8, verse 32 of Romans, that finds the father active as it regards the son being given over to atone for sin. You'll remember there we're told, he who did not spare his own son, but what? Delivered him over for us all. But you come to Romans one twenty four, where it's used, God's active, very much active again. God gave them over. The objects given over is them, those who provoke his wrath by their denial, taunt by their irreverence, offend by their condition, insult by their worship. I want you to have a clear picture of this in mind, what's going on here, because I don't want you to just think it's something that's necessarily just unrestrained, just sort of opening his hand and saying, well, let's see what happens here. One commentator was helpful to sort of put this picture in our mind, that it's as though this, this river is flowing, and they're, the unrighteous are like a boat that's in this river, and God has been holding this boat for a while, keeping it from going down where there's destruction at the end. And here in judgment, he's let them go. But he says that fails to capture something of the activeness of God in what's taking place here. So not only does he let them go, but he sort of pushes them on their way. God is active, and this action is judgment. So we understand God is acting here, but let's understand also that this is in the realm of judgment. This is a judicial abandonment. And over and over again, when this word is used, you see it having a judicial, legislative, legal sense. In Mark 15, 1, it's there where the chief priest, elder, scribes led Jesus away and delivered him to Pilate. In Romans 1, this is the judicial giving over, abandoning of people in their rebellion to their sins that they value over and above God, who they disdain greatly, who they perceive It's only restricting them, restraining them from having exactly what they want. Have you ever thought about that as judgment? Judgment being you receiving exactly what you want. God's judgment is to turn them over. We should realize this is not an unusual action for God to take, to judge in such a way. Leviticus 26, 21, telling Israel... If then you are unwilling to obey me, Leviticus 26, 25, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered, delivered, turned over into enemy hands. And yet even in that we find mercy. Leviticus 26, 40, even warning of this judgment to deliver them over, he mercifully tells them if they confess their iniquity, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant. Chrysostom said on Romans 1.24 of God giving them over, capturing that same idea, God allowed them to go their own way in order that they might at last learn from their consequent wretchedness to hate the futility of a life turned away from the truth of God. So then when we look at this, I think we can understand this in such a way that all who are turned over, for all of them, this is a deliberate act of judgment, but for some perhaps an act of mercy by God who is smiting sinners that they might return to him, but certainly we would know that very few actually do. Friend, God gave them over. Those are words that ought to be a bit disturbing to all of us. They ought to disturb the sinner given over to pursue your sin, friend, that is not liberation. 
That is not freedom. This is not the ultimate goal of humanity or society. This is judgment. God gave them over. Those are words that ought to cause the Christian to respond with really a sense of humility that it's only by the grace and mercy of God that he's restrained and rescued us from the evil that we once pursued, for the lust that we once had in in our hearts. Praise God that, that, that he hasn't given you everything that you've wanted, right? And for the sinner, this ought to disturb the sinner that they would just stop in their tracks, that they would see the futility of a life that is opposed to the truth and opposed to God and where there's not going to be satisfaction that's actually found. This is sobering. What what a sobering reality that there is a point where God makes a judicial decision in response to the sinner's actions, that there is a point in the life of the ungodly who have denied the truth, suppressed the truth, continue to live apart from God, where it comes to a point that God gives you over to the lust of your heart exactly what your appetite is for. This might, this, uh, might be disturbing enough, but it gets even worse. Look at their condition. God gave them over in the lust of their heart. This is the condition of their heart. And that little phrase there, in the lust of their hearts, that makes verse 24 different from verse 26 and 28 because here Paul doesn't immediately just address what they're given over to. He gets there, but instead he takes us again to the governing center of the person where the problem is found, your heart. Given over in the lust of their heart. So it is the heart that is driving this perverse rebellion That's the motivating thing that's in the person there. And as disturbing as the judgment is, perhaps more disturbing is the condition of the heart that's driving the sinner down this path of death and destruction. So so look, break that down. In the lust of their heart, the Greek word for lust describes a strong impulse or a desire. It describes a craving that you would have or an appetite. And the context here makes clear that this is not a positive desire because this word can be used in a positive or a negative sense. But this is not a positive desire to have a strong impulse to glorify God, to have a strong impulse to, uh, or an impulse to honor God, to thank God, to glorify Him, a desire for holiness. This is a perverse desire that's driving the heart here and an appetite for sin. And the context makes that clear. When you understand this in view of the judgment of God giving you over that comes before this is said, and all that follows being the perverse actions of the sinner after this, such acts that you see taking place are the manifestations of the lust of the heart. In a sense, it's the heart that's steering the boat downstream and directing it where to go. And it's the heart that's propelling the boat further and further along. I think we need to have an understanding of the biblical view of the heart of man. Whether we're redeemed or we're unredeemed, we need to be clear about this. And we need to understand this because it affects so much of what's going on here. And and when you understand the truth of man's heart from Scripture, it, it ought to cause you to respond much differently to that worldly wisdom urging you to blindly follow your heart and listen when it speaks to you. The biblical description of the heart in summary is sort of this. The heart of man is desperately sick, incredibly deceptive, and profoundly prideful. Desperately sick, incredibly deceptive, profoundly prideful. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 49, 16. Obadiah 3. It's so deceptive that its natural inclination is that you would always judge yourself favorably. Guess what? That doesn't only fall in line for the person that's the sinner, but that also happens with the saint as well. That you would go, wow, I'm not as bad as what, I, what that guy over there is. I actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. The difference is that the, the sinner, the, the sanctified person's heart, the saint's heart is being sanctified. Although it's not totally, completely glorified, but praise be to God, it is changed. It is different. I know the Sunday school class is going through Ecclesiastes 11 or Ecclesiastes 10 this morning coming up to 11. 
And you might wonder about Ecclesiastes 11.9 where it has those words, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Well, that sounds like it'd be right in line with culture, right? Just follow the desires of your eyes. But the sentence that comes next, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Even the Apostle Paul expresses caution as it regards his own heart in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. So, so then what's the distinction here between the heart of the believer and the heart of the unbeliever? Well, I think we can lay this out in multiple ways. The, the, the Christian's heart is such that the Christian is praying for God to reveal any sin that remains in their heart. Like the psalmist, search my heart, O God, and reveal to me where there's any iniquity that remains within me. And when the Christian sees that iniquity, they're able to, to mourn their impure desires that are revealed, and they have a capacity to see them for what they are when they're guided by the truth of Scripture. And as a result of that, they even have this righteous hatred for the inclinations of their heart that remain towards unholiness. It's not that your heart has no unholy inclinations left in it, Christian, but it's that you greatly are grieved by those that are revealed and that you know that are there and you want to see them purged. In addition to this, the Christian's zealous for a sanctified heart because they love God and they know that because of Christ's work, you're actually able to grow in sanctification and purity of heart because the Christian alone is truly free from the bondage of sin so that so that the Christian ultimately can pursue a pure heart. Like you see in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this is the distinction. The ruling passion that drives the Christian heart is, is radically different. It is that the matters of the heart must be dealt with. It is that purity must be pursued that what is broken must be restored, that what is sinful must be purged, that God's will would be done, and that he would be pleased with your life. That's driving the Christian heart. And that's distinct from what you find here in Romans 1.24, where unholy desires are driving the unrighteous heart, which in some capacity has been restrained by God to this point, but in judgment God has turned over. The cravings of this heart, the strong impulses, it's yearning, is ultimately for what God forbids, a perverse desire for that which causes separation between you and your God. This, this is the lustful heart. And the world may have that saying, the cost of not following your heart is spending the rest of your life wishing that you had. But, friend, the biblical reality is that the cost of following your lustful heart may very well be an eternity spent wishing that you had not done so. This is the wicked heart driving the man down the path that he follows, all moved by what is unholy and an abomination to God. And, and look at the very first place that Paul describes the sin-craving heart taking the unrestrained sinner to. To what? Impurity. Their destination here, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is what they've been given over to. The Greek noun used here frequently describes an impurity that's tied to something sexual in nature. 2 Corinthians 12, 21, it's used there. Mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. It's used in Galatians 5, 19, where it speaks of the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality. It's used in Ephesians 5, 3, where we're told, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions. Do you see how it's tucked in with other words that are helping us understand its context? And given the context of what's going to come here, the impurity described here is clearly sexual impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That puts impurity in context. And it gives us a fuller sense of what Paul is conveying here. This body is given to its lust and is, as he describes, dishonored, treated their body shamefully, used their body for immoral purposes, 
used their body in a way that God never intended or designed a body to be used. What's the distinctly different understanding of the Christian of the body? Well, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 6.13. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So that dishonoring the body, as you see it here, is particularly a godless action that has a distinctly godless consequence that's described as being given over to impurity, unholiness. Where has the lust of the heart then led them? How's impurity? How's this impurity that's described here demonstrated? Well, Paul tells you in verse 25, it's demonstrated there. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Paul is giving us the path of the unrighteous. Just follow it here. The heart is driving the sinner. The sinner has been turned over. The sinner has dishonored their body. Now, the sinner is demonstrating all of this in what will set up the second turning over, the second judgment that we're going to see in verse 26, the action of the unrighteous in verse 25 is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Their lustful heart has taken them to a place where they have traded truth for lies. They've bought into deception and it's cost them truth. They've invested themselves fully into what is fiction, what is a lie, what is falsehood that's here. Truth of God for lies. Who's the father of lies? John 8, 44, Jesus says, the devil who does not stand for truth because there is no truth in him, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Their their unrestrained heart then has taken them to a place where they've traded something godly, truth for something devilish, lies. What's the lie? Look in verse 25. Paul describes the lie. Their idolatry and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Man is is a creature that's designed to worship and serve. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Within this design is the means by which, even when that confession is made, within that design is the means by which man finds his greatest joy and delight. Designed to worship then is so ingrained, so much a part of man, so ingrained that he must do it, that he will do it no matter what. And what you find taking place here is just that. But because the truth has been exchanged for a lie, the object of their worship is not what it must be, And so they fail not only in their worship, but they fail in ultimately what brings joy and delight and satisfaction. Man was never meant to find his greatest joy and delight in creation, but only in the creator. But the heart of this man is craving the creature, looking for happiness in himself and in creation. Given over to impurity, the lustful heart seeks satisfaction in creation in order to satisfy its unrestrained cravings that long to be satisfied and that will never be satisfied because all of this is in response to a lie. Idolatry is a demonstration of the heart believing lies. Craving for creation, all of this we're told here is to their shame, but given that this is what they worship, this ultimately becomes their life. One One biblical commentator said this, whatever is the worship focus of your heart will ultimately determine your entire life. Whatever is the worship focus of your heart will ultimately determine your entire life. And at the center here of sexual immorality described in this text is idolatry where Paul goes to before describing this sexual perversion. Look, for believers and unbelievers, I think there's a real sense in which verse 24 and 25 is very disturbing from the judgment that it describes here to the path that sinners willfully take in response to being turned over. And friend, as you're listening to all this, if there is any conviction of conscience, if there is any awakening in your heart this morning, any sort of response to the truth, instead of to the lies that the culture has peddled you again and again and again, friend, repent Repent. Turn away from your rebellion. Turn from the path of impurity. 
turn from the path of idolatry, turn from the path that is never going to satisfy your cravings, turn from the path of destruction and cry to God to rescue you from the way that you've long craved. A way that's taking you a long, long way from God. I realize, look, that we're in the middle of a sermon and we are in the middle of a church service this morning, but there is no need for the formalities of all this to cause you to wait to come to Christ and to (laughs) repent from your sin. You have worshipped a lie far too long and God has been abundantly patient with you. Trust not your heart. I am telling you something, the text is telling you something that you're not going to hear within the world in which you live. Don't trust your heart. Trust the truth that infallible and sufficient scripture is revealing to you. Trust Jesus whose heart is pure and who died to save sinners such as yourself to come and to rescue sinners such as you. And and even though we're in the middle of all of this, you know who the elders are. One of them just prayed this morning and one of them's back there on the wall with his hand raised. Get them now in the middle of a sermon and tell them that you need to hear the gospel. You need to hear how righteousness is found. You need to hear how to turn and to flee from the path that you've been long going down that leads to destruction. Tell them that you need to hear the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. Friend, this, this gospel when you look at what you're given over to here, it's profoundly powerful. Given over to impurity, that expresses why we need the gospel and how powerful that it is to save a sinner such as you. Look at the second, the second area we're going to look at here this morning, verse 26 and 27, given over to passions. First given over to impurity, now given over to passions. So this judgment of giving over here, it continues This is what happens if you don't repent. It continues. It gets more disturbing. It gets more worse. It gets more sobering here in this way. Given over from impurity now to degrading passions. Look at the text. For this reason, again, causing you to consider everything that's come before here, the actions of the unrighteous, the the idolatry here in verse 25. Note the judgment again, God acting, God gave them over. And, And although... Verse 24 was disturbing. It gets even worse. It's though they're even more unrestrained in their pursuit of their sinful cravings, more released, pushed further here downstream to their heart's desires. The destination now of their being given over is this, two degrading passions, two degrading passions. Degrading is the word that corresponds here with unclean in verse 24, and this describes dishonor, disgrace, and shame. Passions is the Greek word pathos. It's different than the one that was used for lust a moment ago in verse 24. Describing here in verse 26, passions that are clearly sexual in nature. The same word used 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Judgment here is God acting so that they further are unrestrained, which finds them now driven by a lustful heart to sexual passions that are shameful even more depravity. So, so I want you to see something from this. I want you to be very clear because, again, this, this is something we need to have settled in our mind. Paul is going to show us where all this leads. But before we consider that, I just want to be clear about something that's in this text. Look at the text. Degrading passions. Degrading passions. The heart evidencing degrading passions. Friends, that, that means the heart is desperately sick. I'm telling you this because there is a popular trend in churches to teach something such as, so long as you do not act on those desires, then you're fine and you're honoring God. And and certainly you should not act on them, but the very existence of perverted sexual passions ought to be of great concern and address, not merely pushed aside, placated, and ignored because you've yet to act on them. That there is a danger in disregarding degrading passions that are entertained by the heart. And the church that tells you, oh, don't worry about it, just don't act on them, is participating in the lie. 
Now, look, as Paul demonstrated what giving over to impurity looked like in verse 24 and 25, he does the same thing in verse 26 and 27. What does this look like, degrading passions? For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Those who have exchanged the truth for a lie now exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. You think about those words, natural and unnatural. Just think about how we got here. Remember all of this context. He's been talking about lust, impurity, that's sexual in nature, dishonored bodies, degrading passions. Paul is addressing sexual relationships that were never intended by how God designed females. This is completely unnatural in view of God's design. Look back to verse 20 of Romans 1. Remember there, Paul was describing creation, and he was talking about natural revelation in this sense. And he's describing creation here that clearly attests to the existence of God, his what? Eternal power and his divine nature. And so that for you to reject what's clearly seen, verse 20, is to suppress the truth and deny what's evident from what God has designed to be very evident, leaving each and every person completely without excuse because we live in creation that attests to the very existence of the Creator, that you can look around and you can see His fingerprints all over it. It's His design. Tie that to verse 26. That's just a handful of verses later here. God designed men and women in very distinct ways so that there is a very evident and natural way in which sexuality functions. We don't even have to get into details that make us uncomfortable because if you know how men and women are designed, you know what he's talking about, right? That's because that's natural. And what is described about women in verse 26 is that they're functioning in a very unnatural way. Friend, what a very intentional way to rebel against God in his purposeful design, and to instead worship and serve creation. Exchanging the natural for the unnatural. You know what? You ought not be surprised that we live in a society that's desperate to normalize perverse sexual relationships. To put it in front of your eyes in every movie that you go to, and, and some to, to, to go, there has to be some time devoted to it in the movie, in, in every commercial that you watch, in everything that the world can possibly set before your eyes. They have to do this. Why? Because the truth is that's very unnatural. Never God's will, never the way in which women were designed to function. So there must be this ongoing effort to promote this in an attempt to normalize a lie, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If we just bombard you enough, you'll get used to it enough, and it'll just seem like this is normal. This is just the world we live in. This is what love looks like, right? There's even a legal attempt, as we talked about earlier, whereby, as we've already considered, if you say that this is unnatural, that's against the law of the land so that it's hate speech to not promote the lie. Think for a moment in view of all of this that Paul is sending this letter into Rome. Paul is sending this letter here into the heart of the Greco-Roman world where they would have viewed homosexual relationships as a part of the culture. Maybe we could even go so far as to say normal. Paul is clear this is unnatural. And it's clearly so, given the way that God designed men and women. And look at verse 27. This disdain for God's will and rejection of his design, it's not limited to women, but it's also demonstrated in men who, in the same way also, the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Again, the degrading passions here of a lustful heart that's found in females is found in males, and it's described in three parts. The first is this, men abandon the natural function of the woman. Again, completely unnatural, men giving up, abandoning how they were designed to function, how nature evidences they're made to function with women, abandoning the natural function. That, that is the lust of the heart craving what is antithetical to God's will, purpose, and intent all out in rebellion. Let me just ask you when we're thinking about what's natural and unnatural, who gets to decide what's natural? I think it's the one who created all things. Is it up to the creation or the creator to, to determine how humanity is designed to function? 
a godless mind says, oh, this is all subjective. And the right of every creature. Remember, priority of individual desires, all that we would be happy. They do this because the creature is prized above the creator. So men abandon the natural function of the woman. The second component that he gives you here is men burned in their desire toward one another. And in the pursuit of what their lustful hearts crave, they throw sort of more fuel on the fire of their desires for one another, anything to consume the greater perversity that their hearts are desiring. So again, note, Paul not only condemns here the physical demonstration of this, but also the lust of the heart for this. This is where the one has been given over, where he goes, and still they don't stop. The third component, men with men committing indecent acts. Their actions here and their relationships that, again, the world's describing as love. The Scripture describes as shameless and decent. It describes what's here as symptomatic of a diseased heart pursuing exactly what it wants in an idolatrous fashion. And note towards the end of verse 27 a particular type of consequence that comes from turned over to degrading passions where unnatural relations are demonstrated, and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. Sin has consequences. And a natural sexual desire has particularly unnatural consequences, consequences, so much so that they feel the penalty in this lifetime. What, what Paul is describing here seems to indicate that the very perversion itself is something of the punishment, a punishment that precedes the wrath to come. And when you think about it in terms of what they're craving and their satisfaction that they're longing for, they will never find it. One commentator said, God would not allow his created order to be so violated without there being just punishment. And, and I think in some sense we observe those consequences Maybe most noticeably when we consider the lies regarding gender that come with these surgeries that mutilate the body and leave devastating effects that are felt for the rest of the person's life. And yet, whenever they're tried to be documented and they're tried to be made known to the larger society, they just cover them up and say, oh, you don't want to read this. You don't need to hear what's going on. So even here, look at Romans 1. Even here, we're going to see next time, we'll finish this then, the unrighteous go even further after what's killing them. There's one more giving over that we'll look at then. Church, this is the truth. We, we live in a world where we're confronted with what's described in Romans 1 every day. And it's wrapped in a lie that promises freedom and joy in the consummation of a loving, tolerant society. But Romans 1 here sets the truth beside the lie and it exposes the narrative for what it genuinely is, fraud. And it helps us comprehend what we observe going on all around us. And it means then that there's a particular way in which we live. There, there are things that we do not do. There are things that we do. It means that we do not live by these lies. We don't participate in the lie. This is why we don't celebrate, affirm, or prove what is divine judgment so that you so that you're not one participating when you're invited to the same-sex wedding. This is why we don't go. We don't go to celebrate people being turned over. Why would we celebrate what's offensive to God? Why approve what God, what denies what God has designed and what's unnatural and what's an expression of a lustful heart craving even further depravity? When the Scripture is set beside the world in which we live, the Scripture reveals that the judgment of God is all around us. We cannot celebrate what God is acting against. And the irony behind all of this is that this is exactly what the godless want. He's giving them over to. He's giving them the cravings of their heart. Trace that all the way back to the garden. People who just want to get on with their lives in the way in which they want to live, godless, unrestrained, not led by Scripture. Well, while all that informs us of the actions we don't take, there's actions that we do take. And it all goes back to the context. We give them what they desperately need. We give them the only thing that's powerful enough to save. We bring to them the hope that's found in the gospel. We show them the truth that leads to genuine joy, delight, and satisfaction. And by the grace of God, some are changed. Look in 1 
1 Corinthians 6. We've gone here before, but it's worth our attention again. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Paul addressing a church that's in the very heart of the Greco-Roman world that would have been very familiar with all of this type of a sin. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, that you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Some that were in the midst of all of this being turned over were plucked out of the river and saved. The gospel is powerful enough to do that. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. We, we, we think so often about Ephesians and the grace that's displayed there. Just remember what we're told in that text. The church that's there, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. People saved who were dead in the lust of their flesh. So, friend, we proclaim truth in a culture that's exchanged truth for lies, and we live in faith in view of that truth. We proclaim truth, and we live in view of this, of how men and women were designed. We, we live and proclaim truth of who it is that we're created to worship, truth of where joy is found, where the longings and satisfaction of your heart can actually be found, truth that our God can change the heart that we've looked at today and even change the desires of that heart in a radical and profound way, a truth that's there in Romans 1, 23 and 32, truth that reminds us of the necessity of the gospel. The truth the world wants to suppress is the very truth that offers freedom and liberation from sin and death and where the satisfaction of the heart that the heart craves finds an object of eternal joy in God. May we be proclaimers of that truth, and may we live in view of that truth in light of the culture in which the Lord has called us to live in this day. Father, thank you for giving us the truth that's found in Scripture. Thank you that it, it reveals to us what's going on, and it allows us to be able to live in faith. And our desire is to live in faith. And Father, we confess that sometimes that's very difficult. And we ask you, Lord, as believers gathered in the church, believers that Christ has saved, to search our heart, reveal where there's any impurity that remains, and drive us to Christ, purge the impurities from us, so that we may live a life that's pleasing to you and completely in line with your design and your will. Find us faithful amidst a world that's telling us something much different. Make us bulwarks in this world, standing firm, unwavering. Plant our feet firm and deep. Give us steel in our spine in order to proclaim and live in view of truth, we pray, to the glory of your great name. Amen.